A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 138 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as on Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me like a Jedi out of communication with the Order, the EU guru himself, the Count of Two Continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. We are here to tell you about the Twinkie this time. Some people will get it, and some people will be like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Twinkie. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. What's with the Twinkie? You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we ponder Hayden Blackman's Darth Vader in the Ghost Prison by Dark Horse Comics, issues 1 through 5. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. That's right, Darth Vader and the Ghost Prison. Two in the box, ready to go. We be fast and they be slow. Okay, I'm done with the Ghostbusters jokes now, I think. Um, this is probably my favorite of all the Darth Vader series. Um, we've got Darth Vader and the Lost Command, which we covered in the last couple episodes. We've got Darth Vader and the Ghost Prison, obviously, this one. We have Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin, a.k.a. Darth Vader and the Lack of Plot. And then we've got Darth Vader and the Cry of Shadows. And the running theme through all of them, minus, well, I mean, even to an extent, Ninth Assassin, though we don't really get the motivations behind the Assassin character or anything more about that particular individual, uh, it tends to be a study in Vader that's not from Vader's point of view. It tends to be a focus on the people around him, uh, even if it's the people around him in his former life. Like, even when it came down to what we got with Lost Command. In a lot of ways, Vader was a central character, of course, but it was about the life he could have had with Padme and such, and that being the thing that drives him and shapes him, uh, and seeing the questions of loyalty to this empire. The other big running theme is this idea that the empire itself may inspire loyalty initially, but when you start looking at what they're doing, in a lot of cases, it doesn't. It starts to, uh, to wither under its own oppression and such. This one has very good artwork uh, by Augustine Alessio, I believe is how you pronounce it, though I could be completely screwing it up. And in this case, Hayden Blackman tells a relatively personal story for one character that takes us through it, who is not Vader, 
uh, seeing it kind of from participating, but from outside of Vader's own head, and gives us a story that has some nice twists and turns. Um, it's kind of a shock, initially, conceptually, um, that winds up working out very well. I mean, it's again, like I said, it's probably my single favorite Darth Vader story of this era, not just from this series, but of this era. I mean, it even outdoes Purge in that sense, because as cool as it is to see Vader going after remaining Jedi and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't have the personal nature that this does um, and doesn't have the scope that this does. The only thing that takes me out of this story is the fact that given how big the events are that happen in this story, you would think that they would have been mentioned at some point by someone at some other time. But of course, you can't do that until a story is written. So we have stories written in this era that you would think would have mentioned this that don't, simply because this story came later, even if it happens before some of those other stories. It's just sort of the nature of the way that Star Wars is put together chronologically uh, and publishing chronologically. But great series. This is one to check out. And thankfully, none of these Darth Vader series are connected enough that to read one, you must read the others, or to read one, you must understand the ones that came before it. You can pick up just Darth Vader and the Ghost Prison, have this fun ride, and never touch the other three Vader series. So pick it up if you haven't yet. It's definitely worth the read. Yeah, I kind of got the feeling this one took place before the last one, in fact. I mean, this one seemed to be like a few months after the events of Episode 3. This, too, is is by far, in a way, my favorite of these as well. Uh, I, not only do I like what it does for Vader, I like how it kind of gives you an idea of the, uh, the sense of what's going on with the Empire at this moment. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, for Vader, it's, it's, a, it's a really fun story. Uh, for me, I really enjoyed the character, uh, and, and I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right, Lorita Tom? That's how I've always pronounced it. All right. Well, a unique name, to be sure. Uh, but a character that I really enjoyed, um, you know, he'd been uh, in a, a bombing of some sort, you know, and had to have his half his face and lost an arm, which I found was kind of interesting. You know, just the fact that the character himself was crippled and did not have any robotic prosthesis. You know, I mean, he had no arm coming out he was missing his left arm so so that was an interesting twist on the character as well plus the way that the plots all worked out for that character uh, i really enjoyed the way that the log was presented that it was all considered a file given to palpatine and there's aspects of the file that like vader was like this stays off the record and then he's like and while i would normally do that this record is for the emperor so i gave full disclosure I just I really enjoyed the way that all played out and the twist at the end here. Unlike what we get in Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin, this one really got me excited. I was like jaw hanging open, like "Are you kidding me?" Like that was so cool. Uh, so yeah, I really like this one, and it's kind of sad that you go from this to the Ninth Assassin because I mean this really upped the game for the idea of what they were doing with the Darth Vader series here. And it's it's like you said, Nathan, it's. it's easy to not really call it a series because they're not really connected. And I think that that also works in this case because while there was a moment where I was sitting there reading it going, hmm, is this actually after the first one or before it? Then I stopped and I was like, it doesn't matter because it doesn't actually connect to the story beyond the fact that Vader is involved. So, I, you know, once I got past that and moved right along, I was flying right through it. Uh, I enjoyed the art. Um, 
I, the concept of the story, you know, the ghost prison and what it was all about was was profound. I mean, especially on the reread, I was just like, oh my god! Like, there's a moment where Vader just freaks out about everything that the Jedi were doing, the fact that they were lying to him all that time and stuff, and it just it plays so well into everything that we've seen on screen and what we were going to be seeing later with Vader coming in and all this hate Vader had. It just makes sense to see that progression towards that. So yeah, I, I'm I'm there with you. This is definitely one of my favorites. I'm looking forward to really getting into it. Yeah, and the whole issue of going from this to Ninth Assassin, it's like, this is the one that makes you say, oh, shit! And then Ninth Assassin makes you say, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, one is, one is the positive woohoo, and the other is the what the hell am I reading? We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning beyond his incension of all ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. Uh, we're going to take a slightly different approach this time. We're, we're sort of experimenting with ways to cut down some of our recording time, because a lot of times it seems as though when we cover one arc of a comic, it always has to be two episodes, when it certainly wasn't like that originally. Um, so in this case... Given the nature of this story, we're going to cover it in one quick summary rather than doing issue by issue and then commenting on it, and then we can start talking about it in depth afterwards. That way the discussion is not interrupted by quite a bit of summarizing. And let us know, Beyonders, which uh, way you prefer. I mean, if you don't mind the longer ones or if you like it condensed, you know, we want to know what you think too. So we start on Coruscant. It is graduation day. Now that the Clone Wars are over, the Imperial Academies, like the one on Ryothal, the one on Coruscant, and so forth, have created an accelerated program to get more officers out on duty faster. And among these cadets that have finally reached their graduation day here just a few months or several months after the events of Revenge of the Sith, which, from all I understand, is set shortly after Lost Command. It's still in that same little window there. But then again, uh, that's just kind of an assumption because of the order in which they were published in most respects. One of these cadets is Lorita Tom. Now, Lorita Tom is a character whose family used to do Tabana gas mining. And the Confederacy of Independent Systems during the Clone Wars decided to sabotage the family business, which included tying up his parents and other family members and then blowing up the entire facility with them still inside. Uh, Lorita seems to have been the only one, at least the only one mentioned, to have managed to escape, but it cost him, as Mark had said, his left arm and cost him burns to one side of his face, including an eye that at this point is uh, uh, cloudy. So it looks like the eye itself uh, was also taken. So he's seeing out of one eye, lack of depth perception. He's at a significant disadvantage, you would think, to his peers. And he's sort of the bookish type, the, the studying kind of guy, as opposed to going out for drinks uh, with his confederates and all. And at this graduation ceremony, we get to meet the headmaster of the overall Imperial Academy system, guy by the name of Headmaster Gentis. Gentis had been a general during the Clone Wars, hero of all kinds of battles. Um, he himself appears to be burned, or that's just the way he's drawn, either that or he's really, really scraggly looking. Um, but he gives this great rousing speech about loyalty to the Empire. Not to the Emperor, but to the Empire. We then move on into the evening after the ceremony, and Lorita's friends try to basically convince him, hey, let's go check out these prototype 
uh, what, what's eventually going to be TIE fighters. Check out these prototypes and everything. Um, this will be your chance to prove that you can fly them, but it's all a ruse to lock him in the cockpit of one of them because all the other cadets, and I do mean all of them, it appears, have a plan. They're in league with Gentis on something. Lorita manages to launch, kind of at a, at a danger to himself because they're not exactly perfected, launch himself out in an ejector seat, and as he's coming back down to the surface of Coruscant, or the surface level that he was on, he sees explosions. And it turns out that Gentis has basically fomented a rebellion and a coup within the Empire. He's gotten all these cadets throughout the entire system, it appears, to be loyal to him and to the Empire, not to the Emperor. He basically, Gentis has lost all but one, it seems, of his own sons and a whole lot of kids that he had trained to the Imperial War Machine just in the last several months. Lots and lots of them dying. There's a point at which they show this giant crematorium where the bodies are being burned into ash because there are just so many of them. And he's made a vow that he will serve the Empire, but he will not allow more of his sons or other people's sons to die needlessly thrown into basically a meat grinder by the Emperor. Very much like we got with the characters in Lost Command saying that the Empire had betrayed them by making them essentially into slaves with no real meaning. So we pick up with issue two amidst that battle. Lorita makes it back uh, to the site of the bombing, to where the graduation was and everything, and finds that it's his own friends who are doing this. He's the one who recognizes this is Academy mates, despite the disguises that they are wearing. And when one of them says, you know, I would, you know, you would never have joined us. You would have drawn too much attention. Stand with us now. Lorita kills him. Says, you know, you should have asked me yesterday. But this idea that he is loyal to the Empire and these people are all traitors despite the fact that they were his friends. He bows to Lord Vader, who is there on the scene, and the two of them go back towards the palace, the Imperial Palace, only to find that a deadly necrotic virus has been released inside the palace by some uh, Academy big shots, uh, like big name students, who have been brought to personally see the Emperor. And in doing so, it allowed them to get close enough to release this necrotic virus. So everybody inside appears to be dying, with the exception of two people. Palpatine himself, who's using the dark side to keep the virus at bay, but not for long. He needs help. And from the pages of Empire, Trashta, who will later be Grand Moff Trashta, who himself is kind of like Lorita uh, in that he has uh, prosthetics in his case because of something that happened to him earlier, which we'll get to momentarily. So they take these Sith Infiltrator slash Scimitar, or something that certainly looks like it. Maybe it's a another version or another model based on Darth Maul's ship as opposed to his actual ship, but it was in Republic hands. So this may actually be the one. And they need to find a place to get the Emperor to safety. He's put into uh, a medical container thing to try to keep him alive, but they got to find a safe place to go because at this point, the Empire is too fragile, too weak, doesn't have a big enough army to control the galaxy. If they show any sign of weakness with the Emperor, chances are Gentis will get more people to his cause and manage to take over the entire Empire. So uh, Vader and Lorita Tom go to where Vader thinks he can find just such a location. They visit the Jedi Temple. Even as they are doing so, another of Gentis' plans kicks into motion, 
telling all the droids within five kilometers of his signal to kill all Imperial officers that they find. Fortunately for Trashta, he manages to take out the medical droid that tries to take him out. Vader and Lorita make their way into the Jedi Temple, tearing through droids, and make their way to the Jedi Council Chamber, where they play a holographic record that, of course, Vader knows of because he is Anakin, in which Anakin discusses with the Jedi Council a secret prison, the ghost prison called Prism. And the idea is that this prison, in the mass shadow of the sixth moon of Diab, is where the worst of the worst go. Think of this as the Star Wars equivalent of Guantanamo Bay. This is where the extreme people within the Confederacy, the people who are too dangerous to be put into a regular prison, are rounded up, oftentimes by people like Anakin, who's captured more than half of the prisoners here, and sent off to this secret prison with no trials, no nothing, until presumably the war is over, and the Jedi are keeping this prison a secret even from Palpatine. But since Anakin's the one that sent him there, even though he didn't know where exactly it was, Anakin at least knows that something like this exists, so Vader knows to look for those records. They find a location. Vader goes completely nuts, tearing through the Jedi Council chamber about the betrayal of the Jedi and so forth, and they set out for this prison. En route, we get to learn Trashta's background about him being on Noctralis, hunting down a Jedi who had defected to Count Dooku's side, who was at the time just a Padawan, who had a thermal detonator when he was caught that wound up uh, costing trash to his eyes and screwing up something in his respiratory system and at least one of his arms, basically um, taking him out uh, of play for a little while now that, though, he's back with all these cybernetics and all these things to help him make his way through. As they're on their way there, Gentis keeps his plot in motion. Grand Moff Tarkin overseeing the Death Star is now the highest-ranking officer, in theory, within the Empire, with the Emperor supposedly, according to Gentis, um, in a secure facility being treated by his medical staff, even though Gentis has no idea where he is, but even with Vader, he's out of play. Vader has supposedly disappeared. He's out of play. Trachta has disappeared. He's out of play. That leaves Tarkin, Will Huff Tarkin, and uh, Gentis is willing to allow him to come to Coruscant to take over, although this is part of his plan, because he also needs to take out Tarkin. He needs to take out the high-ranking Imperial officers to make himself the new Emperor and run things his way, uh, that he sees as best. Meanwhile, the Sith Infiltrator arrives at Prism. Vader kills the one Jedi Warden, the only Jedi who's stationed there, who's been there for months and has no idea the war is over, no idea the Republic has fallen. And as they make their way inside, they start trying to come up with a plan to somehow save the Emperor and take back the Empire. Uh, their means of doing so is going to be to use the prisoners. There are 208 prisoners, I believe it is, when they first arrive. Uh, one of them happens to be the Padawan who had caused the injuries to Trashta, so Trashta lessens that down to 207 by beating him to death very violently. But in seeing the descriptions of these different prisoners, Trashta comes up with the idea, let's release the prisoners, turn them into our own army, and go after Gentis. That way you've got an unpredictable fighting force. Vader's decision is not to simply release all of them and just offer them the chance, hey, you'll get a pardon if you do this, but to start basically a blood sport. He opens up all the cells and says that those who survive the coming battle in the next few minutes will be given the chance 
to join him. Among those who wind up surviving is Captain Sean Volta, a Confederacy sniper, um, whose father had been a pilot. His ship had been commandeered by uh, Republic troops, and he was he wound up being killed in the battle uh, that ensued. So she doesn't like the Jedi. She doesn't like the Republic. She's willing to work with them for a pardon. So after all the blood and guts is done, they give a, a, a trash gives a nice rousing speech about how they could be loyal citizens to the Empire, how the Jedi have fallen, the Republic was corrupt, you know, all your old transgressions will be gone if you follow us, let us make you into real Imperials. And it's an idea that sounds doable, because at least those that survive, most of them, manage to agree to be a part of this. Uh, along the way, as they're trying to come up with what comes next, what the next step in their plan's going to be, Lorita Tom winds up talking to Volta, the woman who's the sniper. He finds out about her background, but in talking about the whole piloting thing, he's like, wait a second. You know, could you predict where a ship would exit hyperspace if you know generally where they're coming from? She says yes, and they set a plan in motion. And at that point, it seems like the fast-forward button and the speed button is hit on the story as we move into the last issue, and it goes rather quickly, almost too quickly. would have been nice if this was a six-issue series. An Imperial Lambda-class shuttle arrives on Coruscant bearing Grand Moff Tarkin, and Gentis is waiting for him, ready to take him into custody. However, Moff Tarkin has brought Vader, Tom, Trachta, uh, Volta, and these other people who are willing to give up uh, or to uh, give their loyalty to the Empire in return for freedom from prison. And this huge battle ensues inside the docking bay, wherein uh, Lorita Tom delivers a major blow to Gentis, not by killing Gentis himself, but by shooting Gentis's only son that's left, Call, C-A-U-L. And the Emperor, now having healed with the dark side and such in the time that they were at the ghost prison, is also aboard the shuttle and emerges and force fries with force lightning, Gentis killing him. The remaining traitors are all rounded up and sh uh, shot and killed. Trashta is promoted to Grand Moff and made the new headmaster of the Imperial Academies. Lorita Tom is being promoted from lieutenant, which is the rank that he had after graduation, to being an admiral. And the question now becomes, what do we do with the people that are left from the prison? Trashta wants to keep to his word and be an honorable man, but Vader doesn't want them to be loose in the Empire because Vader expects them to eventually turn on the Empire. So the solution that they come up with, supposedly, that Trashta believes, is they're going to stick them all on a ship and send them away to kind of the far reaches of the galaxy where they have their freedom, but... They're exiles, essentially, that they could not be in Imperial space or they will be killed. But if they want to live, hey, go out there. Wild space, unknown regions, whatever. Just get the heck out of Dodge. Of course, that becomes a moot point because as they're lifting off, the ship explodes. Something arranged by Lorita on orders from Vader. Trashta is not at all happy about this. Uh, again, he is a man who may be Imperial, but he's at least somewhat a person of honor when it suits him. We end with kind of a shock. Turns out that Volta was not on the ship. Volta is going to wind up uh, serving as a an Imperial military officer, supposedly under Lorita Tom's command. But even as he is having that conversation with her and congratulating her, Vader's having a conversation with Palpatine, where Palpatine basically says that Tom is ruthless, he's efficient, he should be groomed 
to be a better officer so that if Vader should ever fall, the young admiral could then prove to be a worthy successor, despite, despite the whole, you know, not being able to use the Force or anything. This, of course, sets off Vader's internal alarm bells, and when Vader finally asks to see Lorita Tom on a balcony uh, to speak about the future, supposedly, his last lesson is never to suffer rivals. He grabs Lorita with his hand, not with the Force, and throws him over the railing to his death. And thus ends Darth Vader and the Ghost Prison. Uh, quite the story. Uh, definitely a favorite with a lot of interesting characters along the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when I jump in, the first thing that always struck me was that, you know, Lorita being crippled. I, I think I was about four to six pages in before I even realized that. You know, and then you go back and you're looking at it, and sure enough, it's like he's got the full sleeve the whole time. It's drawn such a way that it stays realistic to the character. And it also, I, I kind of get the feeling that it's supposed to be appeasing to or appealing to the eye of the rest of the Imperial troops. Because they never tie off, you know, the, the extra sleeve. They let it hang all the way down like it's a full arm. Uh, which, again, it, it gets me that aspect of the fact that, you know, you would think that the Empire would force him to get a prosthetic or something. Uh, you know, the fact that he's never had to was kind of surprising to me. Um, when they get to the point where they do the test flight, I thought that, too, was an interesting way. Because, you know, they, they have the fact that it's prototypes and stuff and they're sneaking in. It's kind of like a... A hazing aspect and you're like oh okay cool and then they lock him in you're just like oh dude they're gonna disgrace him. you know i mean there were so many angles going through as, as this was going that i was like okay where are we going with this character i was very interested right away with this character especially the fact that he was he was crippled but yet he was still abled and you know to see the fact that the empire didn't just automatically discard him you know i thought that was pretty interesting and cool walking forward and you know gentis's speech was a good one as well you know you had mentioned the fact that you know, the only thing he really says is, are you willing to die? And I didn't catch that really even on the second read through. It wasn't until you had mentioned that that it really dawned on me. You know, I mean, that his he was talking about loyalty to the Empire, not to the Emperor. And he gets to the end. He goes, in fact, you need only pass a single simple test. Answer one question. Do you have the courage to die for your Empire? And, you know, when you see later when he's standing over the, the crematorium and stuff, you're like, that's pretty much all he sees all the troops doing. So I, I can see how that's very snarky at this point when he's saying that. Yeah, it's kind of one of those guys that's, uh, it goes back to the thing that, and I'm sure others have said this much better, but I'm always reminded of Lucas Wallencheck from Sequest, in which he says, easiest way to lie, tell the truth except the part that really matters. And that's kind of what Gentis is doing here. Gentis is not saying anything that's outright false, but he's focusing on the Empire instead of the Emperor and trying to sort of craft the way that these cadets, these graduates, look at things as being about serving, you know, the society. It's kind of like, it goes back to the, the Roman Empire, for instance. One of the big issues near the end of the Roman Empire that helps lead to the rise of Julius Caesar, the first triumvirate, eventually the second triumvirate once he is dead and all that, is this fact that as you're getting into the latter era of the Roman Republic... There's all kinds of uh, financial issues that are happening, especially to people who are former slaves who became farmers – or former soldiers, excuse me, who became farmers. And a lot of people, their only choice was to get back into the military, but it was getting into the military not with the promise of something better from the government. 
it was with the promise of something better from their general. The general would look after their needs. It wasn't, you know, the government has hired you back as a soldier. You just happen to be serving under this person. It's this general has hired you. He is seeing to your needs. You are loyal to him first, government second. It's why you could have, for instance, uh, Pompey and Julius Caesar going at each other, even though they're supposed to be serving the same government. That's kind of the idea here. It's the, it's not about the one person. It's not about the man. It's about the society. It's about serving the galaxy in the way that you see fit to bring order. I mean, these are people who believe in the new order, believe in the idea that the Republic was corrupt and flawed. They want something better, but their way of going about it will be violent overthrow. Two things that stand out to me for this issue. One is I never even noticed until at the end of reading it the second time. I think I noticed it the first time, but it slipped my mind that he does have the one missing arm. His face is what draws the attention. The fact that he's got an empty sleeve sitting there didn't dawn on me the second time till right there near the end. I think it's particularly because the fourth panel of the entire story where it says, that day I was just Cadet Tom, blah, 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 shows someone that I thought was supposed to be him, but you can tell looking more closely because we haven't because we hadn't seen his face yet in the story um, that it's not burned and the hair is different. So this isn't him. It's just a cadet. But that cadet is using both arms. So with him saying I was just a cadet while it was showing that individual, the idea of both arms uh, not being there hadn't really occurred to me for some reason. Um, but the thing that stands out to me with this issue. Uh, aside from just some of the fantastic visuals like the launching of the escape pod and such, is about this plan. It's an interesting plan, and it's kind of cool with the idea of having essentially someone who is training a new generation of officers, waiting until all those officers are together in order to then bring about this uprising. My question is, how realistic is it? I mean, being able to get all the cadets pretty much to side with Gentis because he was their headmaster and the stuff that he trained them against the Empire. Nobody else got wind of this. Lorita Tom is this incredibly smart guy and he never suspected anything. The idea that it could be some cadets working directly with Gentis, that makes sense. And I figured that's probably what this actually is. It's probably just they've bumped off some of the others who gotten them out of the way the way that the friends tried to get Lorita Tom out of the way. But it yeah. seems like if this is really supposed to be all the cadets from all these academies, to me that stretches credulity saying that that's how this plan could have went down. I mean, we have to take it as a given, otherwise the rest of the story winds up meaningless. But I don't know how feasible something like that could realistically be. Well, I, I, I didn't think it was all of them because I it was Tom that points out to Vader that they had to assume that it was all of them, that, that he had been, you know, training these soldiers for years and that they didn't know how far back his betrayal went. And I, I liked that because it threw everyone into, into question. Uh, but I didn't think that it was actually every single person. The scene that you're talking about though, where it showed the guy with, with both hands. I, yeah, I had that same moment at first too. And then when you're re looking at it, uh, you see, you know, that Tom's sitting down studying, which I think that this goes to part into what you're saying as well. 
because Tom was always about studying. You know, when, when the other guys go to take him out for his night out and to get a drink, he wants to just go back and study. That's all he's been doing. He's got a nose in a book. He's very wholesome at this point. You know, I mean, all he's after is bettering himself and bettering the empire through his actions in the empire. And he wants to be the best at what he can do. So he's, you know, he's fully just studying. He's got no time for women, no time for drinks and very little time for friends. So I think for, you know, his character, it makes sense why he would miss out on everything. Plus, you know, him being crippled and horribly scarred like that, I could also see him naturally just assuming that people are avoiding him because of that, not because they want to keep him in the dark about things. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you. If it was everybody, you know, from all these different academies coming back, yeah, that'd be a stretch. But I don't, I don't think it was. I just think it was key personnel, and then they had their own little splinter groups. I mean, he did a really good job with what he was doing, but man, if he was only, you know, attached to, you know, some of the other groups, like, backfire or whatever the heck it was <laughs> backwash i don't know i can't remember ferris owens group <laughs> whiplash i think <laughs> there were so many different rebellion groups at this point kind of doing their own thing that you know I, I i'm with you where it's like you would think like you'd have heard about the early days when lots of rebellion was, was popping up but i guess they uh kept that down and i can't find it going through right now but there was also a scene where they were talking about, you know, that was the old Republic and the way they mentioned the word old when they said old Republic. I really liked the way it worked because it was like, okay, so that's where the term old Republic came from. But they were using it like, oh, that's not the Empire. That was the old Republic that did that to you. And I thought that was a, a slick way of using that. Um, when you get when you get to the ejection sheet scene, I really I, – I, I like the fact that they take the time – to explain minor details, you know, I mean, first they talk, well, it's the record, it's the way that Tom's writing it down, but for me, it's more like the editorial choice to do it the way they did it, you know, I mean, the report goes, you know, Anson Colin Shen's departed the scene, I assume this was part of some hazing ritual, a joke among the elite and privileged, but I was determined to escape before the incident could blemish my service record. Ensign Cole had been correct. I had secretly logged over 100 missions in the Academy simulator. Again, another reason why he's been in the dark. I mean, he's even though he's never going to be able to fly, he's been logging plenty of time in these things. And I like the, the way that for the character, there's a reason why he's there. You know, like most cadets, I has resorted early to the ejection button early on, only to discover that the prototype's escape systems are still very unpredictable. The catapult unit doesn't explode and vaporize you from the waist down. The hatch might fail to open, slamming you against the roof of the cockpit with enough force to liquefy your bones. And he reaches up. He's like, here it goes. So by the time he's pulling it, you're like, okay, so he's got a 50-50 shot here that he could be dying anyway. You know, and then it launches out and it's like, I had no time to consider that the landing repulsors might invert and smash my skull into the ground because the explosions began to start just as I started my descent. And... You know, the key buildings that were all wiped out, too. It's like, I think it was kind of slick to do this because he's like, I later learned the officers club went first, followed by the stormtrooper garrisons and the comm towers and the supply depot. But it's like, OK, so so anything that we'd seen in the Clone Wars, like, you know, the officers command and all that kind of stuff, if it never lines up again with anything that they bring out, it's like, well, that would have made sense because they were all bombed right away. I was like, OK, that's kind of cool as well. You know, I was really digging all the way that worked. And then when, when the war starts bursting out and everyone's going, I, I like the coloring, the scenes, everything's working there. And when Vader shows up, it's like, holy cow, you know, that's a really cool scene where they got him doing his thing and he throws a piece of statue and that's what, you know, slams down on the guys. He runs up and that's when he finds out it's Shen's. But 
I like the twist there when Shan's like, you know, now we can have your help. You're like, oh, now, you know, and, and you mentioned it too when he has the moment when Tom's holding the blaster, he's like, you know, you could kill Vader now, and he's like, you should have asked me yesterday. Blast, and just zapped him. I there was there was two parts of me with that. I was like, one of me was cheering for Tom, like yeah, you know, and then the other part of me was like, oh man, you know, you just murdered your friend, dude. If only they'd have told you the day before. Yeah, he has his uh, Adam Sandler moment, you know, if only you had told me yesterday, right, basically. Um, <laughs> but that gets us into issue number two as far as content goes here, and uh, I agree, that was a pretty cool scene there. The moment he makes his choice, blasts his buddy while Vader is watching. You know, Vader is watching over his shoulder the entire time. It doesn't seem as though he's making the decision because Vader's there, but you got to figure if he didn't make that choice, Vader was going to cut him down anyway. Uh, I do find it interesting that apparently Imperial uh, officers are taught to shoot uh, gangsta style because he is firing with it turned sideways. Uh, way to go for accuracy and all. Um, the thing that, that struck me about that scene, it's something that, that I don't think would have stuck with me otherwise, but having just talked about Lost Command and having brought up this idea, uh, I think that you brought up, that... In a lot of ways, we're seeing why people are loyal to Vader, and yet it's kind of odd how uh, inspiring he seems to be. Uh, right before the palace explodes, or part of the palace explodes, it says, In all my time at the Academy, I dreamt of becoming a decorated officer, an admiral, perhaps even a Grand Moff one day. But the moment I entered Darth Vader's command, all my own dreams vanished, replaced by a new mission to prove myself worthy of serving the Dark Lord. All right. First of all, on that, that seems like a pretty quick change. Again, it's, it's like Vader is a high-up official, therefore I will serve him. His charisma is there. His dark, brooding, barely saying anything type of charisma is there. I want to follow him. Uh, I'm with you in the sense from last time that there might be a dark side aspect to this thing because it seems as though he is willing to basically just throw himself under Vader's command and pledge himself, you know, life and limb to this guy. Uh, granted, he's serving the Empire and Vader represents the Empire, but to throw himself that personally into Vader's individual desires and such seems kind of, uh, it seemed off to me a little bit. It seems in mm -hmm. keeping with what we see with a lot of people who are blindly loyal to Vader and find him so enthralling, but it seemed like a very quick change. A revenge of the Sith, I pledge myself to your teaching type of very, very quick transition. You almost have to wonder if it's the fear itself that Palpatine's using or has made like a virus. It's like the second you have fear, you become susceptible to the dark side. The second thing that stood out is the way he puts it. To prove myself worthy of serving the Dark Lord. And this is something that we get in other sources too, but I think it really stands out here because of how soon this is after Revenge of the Sith. A lot of the galaxy doesn't really know much about Vader at this point. Even to Tom, Vader was sort of rumors and legends in a lot of ways before he actually meets him in person here. But to say he's serving the Dark Lord. The term Dark Lord, you would think, implies evil. Implies the dark side, especially in a galaxy where... Yeah, they're going to try to erase memory of the Jedi and such, but the Clone Wars was less than a year ago. It's not like the Jedi and knowledge of them is completely gone. Him saying that, 
It's like he's acknowledging the idea that he is going to serve a, an agent of evil. That, or, I don't know, It's he'd have to be assuming that the term Dark Lord refers perhaps to the armor color? Makes him the Dark Lord? Um, or, one thing that, that crossed my mind was maybe Dark Lord has a different connotation within Star Wars than we think. Maybe Dark Lord often means Dark Lord of the Sith, often means Darksider, but what if Dark Lord also was just a title of respect? Um, in a lot of medieval fiction-style tales, uh, and in real-life medieval times, one of the things you might refer to your leader as to show respect, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern even say it in Hamlet, is my dread lord. Not dreaded, but my dread lord. To us, with dread meaning fear and terror, Calling someone a dread lord would automatically conjure up the idea of someone like a Darth Vader, someone who is evil. And yet, for their time, in context, dread lord didn't mean that. It was a sign of respect. So I'm wondering if dark lord, as odd as it sounds to us that someone be calling Vader a dark lord and not readily acknowledging Vader as a force of evil and that they're aligning themselves with evil, maybe it's just something that is a sign of respect but because we've heard that used so much with Sith, we don't see Star Wars authors using that term very often because they don't want to call someone a Dark Lord and then start a controversy about the idea of, well, wait a second, are you saying this person's a Sith? No, it's just a sign of respect. Uh, I wonder if that's the way it's meant because it seems odd that so many of these characters who are willing to work with Vader, who think of themselves as moral, uh, as ethical, as servants of the people and such, as good people would willingly say, who do you follow? Well, I follow the Dark Lord. That doesn't sound so good. Well, and even later, the 501st, there's a scene where they have something like that, where, you know, Tom's asking Vader about Anakin Skywalker, and he's like, what happened to him? And he's like, oh, I killed him. And I was thinking about that from the 501st standpoint. I'm like, if Vader's going around telling everybody I killed Anakin Skywalker, you would think, like, they're kind of like a loyalty aspect there. Or do they they must have all just assumed that Anakin was just another traitor and were like, eh, forget that Skywalker punk, you know. <laughs> One thing, though, that I, I did enjoy was the fact that, okay, when we have the um, ejection seat, uh, when that happens, I thought it was a really cool moment. It advanced the plot because you were able to see all this really cool stuff happening. But it also allowed the character, Tom, to have a rebreather. He has that on all the way up until the moment where they start to walk in the building and Vader realizes, hey, this stuff's necrotic. It's a necrotic virus. You need to put that back on. And it was kind of cool because, I mean, you know, other times something like that would just show up on the character. You know, So it was like, oh, hey, it actually served. And they drew it on there all the way through up to the point where he actually needed it. I was like, kudos for that. And speaking of serving a purpose but being very cool to see, may I say that I don't really remember Empire Betrayal very much. Uh, it was the first Empire arc. It's quite a long time ago. I mean, we're talking, shoot, like 2001-ish, maybe 2002-ish or so uh, when that story came out. And I remember Moth Trachta only as the guy that tried to overthrow the Empire, one of many Imperial officers, it seemed, mm -hmm. during that era of Star Wars storytelling, that kept trying to overthrow the Emperor and take down Vader and all. And to see him here as a loyal Imperial, see what shaped him into who he is at this point, and see at least to a degree what shapes his distrust in Vader as it goes along, 
I thought that was really cool. I was I was kind of wary seeing Trash. I was like, dude, it's Trash Joe. What's he doing here? But especially on a second read, it's exciting to see his role here because of how it plays into things that happen with him later. He's one of those interesting characters that it would have been cool to see more often, but instead we only get in these couple of stories. And you can make the argument that in doing so, he gets the effect that in a lot of ways Boba Fett had for a while, which is you want to know more about him, you want to see him more, but because you don't, it's very exciting when you do. So very cool to see him back. Yeah, I, I was right there with you. Plus, the other thing was the scimitar, Darth Maul's scimitar, which was in there. That's the uh, ship they decided to to scurry Palpatine away with, which I thought was kind of cool to see it. You know, they again, it's coming from Tom's point of view, so he's like talking about things being classified and this, that, and the other thing. But yeah, I mean that the lack of trust there that, that you get from Tracta later, I I too like the way it played out. I like the fact that we got his backstory. There's a really cool moment too uh, where Tracta's standing behind Tom as Tom's over Palpatine, and uh, he goes, uh, "Let's see." They're talking about Gentis, and he goes, "Did he tell you that, Cadet?" No, it seems the headmaster confided in everyone but me. A pity he didn't trust you. And he holds the gun up to the back of his head because I don't trust you either. And that's when Vader saved him. Like, I I, I just, the Tracta character was, again, I'm with you. He was one that in Empire, I was kind of like, okay, he was there. But this one added a level of depth to him that I, I was immediately like, ooh, man, maybe we should do Empire next. <laughs> like, hey, I want to know more about this guy. He's kind of fun. So th- that was a pretty cool little aspect of it there. And then again, getting that, uh, how I was talking about how, you know, Tom, where he was talking, you know, we can't go to any Imperial system. We must assume that I am an exception that, and that Gentis has corrupted all of his students, the entire Academy. Thousands of traitors may have infiltrated our ranks. His reach could easily extend across three rims. And, you know, this plays into something later, like when it's all said and done, when Tom's lining up the traders and has them blasted and he's like, bring in the next group. And they're like, you know, should we remove the bodies? Like, no, I want them to know what's coming. And, you know, I mean, at some point they're gonna have to weed out, you know, who the traders were and stuff. And, and the way he goes about it, you know, I thought it was pretty cool and, and pretty level it, it, which gets to that aspect of what you were saying, you know, talking about how maybe there might be an aspect of the force involved here because, you know, there's a fanaticism that kind of comes on to him that he didn't have at the beginning. But at the same time, as you progress through the story, you can kind of see him take it up. That brings us into issue number three and a few things that, that stood out to me with this particular issue. One is the idea of the Jedi having a secret prison. We know that they're distrustful of the Chancellor the closer we get to Revenge of the Sith. Uh, the idea of them having a secret prison is interesting, though, because it's not just a regular secret. This is basically them thwarting due process. Uh, they're coming in and basically dumping these people into a prison, waiting for the war to get done. And you can look at this in two ways. You can look at this simply as they are prisoners of war, and that's what happens in a time where an enemy combatant can be held until the end of hostilities. Or you could draw that parallel to the idea of the war on terrorism and the prisoners at Guantanamo Bay and the idea of having prisoners who are essentially being held indefinitely because you don't know when the war is ever going to end and in doing so you're not giving any rights to those individuals. Of course, they're not citizens in our case. They're not citizens in most cases of the United States. So it's a little bit different legal situation here. You got to wonder how the government of the Republic looked at and how the government of the Empire eventually look at those who are members of the Confederacy. Surely the Empire is going to look at members of the Confederacy in many respects and think of them as traitors, 
But you gotta wonder if the Republic still thinks of them as their own citizens or not. You know, it's it's the the American Civil War concept. To the North's side, uh, to the Northern point of view and Lincoln's point of view, there never were two separate countries, United States and Confederate States. There was the United States, and you had the half that was still loyal and the half that was rebellious, but it was all essentially brought back together as if the war had never taken place or as if secession had never actually been real because to his mind it was illegal, unconstitutional. To the South's point of view, they broke away and became a separate country, so you were a citizen of the Confederacy or a citizen of the Union. And in this case, kind of the same type of thing. Surely the separatists thought of themselves as citizens of their own unit, but how did the Republic think of them? Because that would make a difference, possibly, in how they would treat these prisoners. Are they prisoners of war from another sovereign nation, so to speak? Or are they prisoners of war from your own and therefore are entitled to the due process that comes along with being a citizen of your country? It, you can make the argument that there's legal precedent in the U.S. for extending legal rights of citizens to those who are not, depending on the circumstances, um, off, including uh, rights in court. But it'd be interesting to see how the, the Republic looked at this one. Yeah, you know, one of the cool things, later when the uh, Jedi comes out of the ghost prison and gets shot down, you know, Tom talks about how they never learned her name, which was interesting because when you go into issue three and they're doing the whole, you know, council order talk, uh, Obi-Wan goes, very well, but I'd like to know the prison's exact location. I plan to inspect conditions personally before I return to the front. Alone for months, Master Skeen has been. Most welcome a visitor from the order would be. I agree. You'll find the prism hidden within the mass shadow of the sixth moon of Diab, right on the fringe of the galaxy, but I advise you to go alone. Of course, Master Windu, Anakin belongs on the battlefield. It's always where he's done the most good, and at this point, Vader just blows up. You fools! The Emperor was right about you all. You plotted and schemed against us from the beginning, and he grabs all the chairs in a whirlwind of force and blasts it out the window. Traitors! This is, an em uh, this is a temple to betrayal. We will razz it when we return to Coruscant. But always remember what you have heard here. The Jedi believed in shades of gray. When there is only what benefits the Empire and what does not. I, I just, I love the fact that at that moment, Anakin, you know, he sees the fact that the Jedi, while he was a Jedi, were lying to him the whole time and were intentionally keeping him in the dark. Which, this now isn't the first time that he has seen that. So, you know, for him, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, it adds rage, but also conviction that he made the right choice. Which, I like the way that works. It does, but it doesn't. Because it... it to him, yeah, he was being lied to. It makes it, you know, the right choice. You know, you were plotting against me. You were hiding stuff from me, et cetera, et cetera. They don't trust you, Anakin. All that from episode three. Um, you even get an echo of the it's not fair thing here because he doesn't get told where the prison is. It's not fair. I can't know. Just like I can't become a master and all of that. Kind of feels like there's a lot of self-delusion going on here, though. Uh, or he's yeah. putting on a show for Tom because... Surely Anakin, I mean, as much as he thinks that what he is doing is for a greater good, take, take over the galaxy, and as he says in Revenge of the Sith, become the Sith apprentice, kill Palpatine, take over, lead a new order, ruling and making things the way that we want them to be, referring to what pa uh, Padme and Anakin talked about. Um, really what Anakin got to in episode two, the idea of someone who's a wise leader who should tell people what to do as long as he's wise. Um, but you, it's, 
it's hard for me to buy into the idea that Anakin actually believed that the Jedi Order was plotting to overthrow the Republic. I can see him believing they were plotting against Palpatine. I could see him believing that he they were keeping stuff from him. But he's the one who finds out that Palpatine is Darth Sidious. He's the one that goes and tells Mace Windu about it. Um, no matter how loyal he is to Palpatine, surely he recognizes that when the Jedi have been hunting for a Sith for this long, including Anakin, that when they go try to take down a Sith and a Sith Lord winds up in power in the Empire, surely he's not intellectually dishonest enough, unless he's self-delusional, to really think that this was all a plot by the Jedi to take over the government and such. Um, he's, he's angry and he's lashing out and he's justifying his actions as Anakin tends to do, no matter what I do, it's for the greater good. But I really have a hard time taking what he's saying here entirely at face value. You know, you were plotting against us from the beginning. Well, maybe they were keeping stuff from me for the beginning and wanting to take down the Sith, which would mean Palpatine from the beginning. But at what point, Anakin, did you ever come to believe that they were actually trying to take over? And Anakin gets that delusion, in a sense, by the end of Revenge of the Sith. Because at the end, what does he say? I should have known the Jedi were plotting to take over. And you get the, you know, Chancellor Palpatine is evil. From my point of view, you're the one who's evil. And, you know, Obi-Wan's right. You are lost. Not only lost to the dark side, but you've lost the freaking plot! Because now you're believing things that flat out aren't true that a day ago you would have said were BS. It well, just seems as though that's... It's self-delusion on a grand scale, or it's an inconsistency. I'd like to think that given that this is Vader, at slash Anakin, that he's deluding himself to justify his actions. I 100% see where you're coming from. I, I think, though, that... Once they found out Palpatine was a Sith and then moved so quickly, I think that that could be what Vader's in retrospect looking at as they were plotting all along because it wasn't until they knew Palpatine was a Sith that they finally moved. But they had been making plans towards Palpatine. They had been keeping Anakin in the dark. They had been keeping Anakin away from Palpatine as much as they could. I mean they, they were always focused on Palpatine and the government. And they were always talking about the government was limiting them and all this. And they were keeping things from the government. So I could see in a twisted frame of mind looking back on it all bent with the rage and pain and all the anger that comes with it. I could see him being self-delusional in that regard. And I could see him being willing to sort of convince himself that the Sith aren't as bad as it sounds. You know, he had encountered Maul. He had encountered Tyrannus. And he'd encountered Ventress as well, of course. Um, but you wonder if at some point what's happening with Anakin, it's like, I don't know. I've always felt as though him going back to report back to Mace Windu about the terrible truth that Sidious and Palpatine are the same was him showing loyalty to the Jedi. Maybe instead what we're seeing with him, I, I mean, maybe it's not just, I, I, I'm trying to find a way to phrase this. The scene in Revenge of the Sith in which he finds out about Palpatine being Sidious. He says, you know, uh, you want to kill me, don't you? I would certainly like to. And we get the line about, I will soon discover the truth of all this, and how he goes back to report it back to the Jedi Order and such. Um, that's a betrayal in a sense because 
Palpatine never told him the truth. So he's got that anger going on right at that moment. How dare you? But you would think he's also got that anger of, you're a Sith. My duty is to take down the Sith. But I'm wondering if maybe what we're getting here, in a sense, is him being able to justify it with things like the fact that in talking to Palpatine, he's known Palpatine as a good guy, yeah. as someone he could trust. And even when Palpatine does reveal himself to be a Sith, it's not, come rule the galaxy with me and we shall be evil. It's, let me teach you these secrets the Jedi can't teach you. That's a broader vision, a broader non-dogmatic way of looking at things like the Jedi that can help you save your wife. Even mm -hmm. in that moment where the, where the temptation is made to Anakin and the offer is made to Anakin, it's still done in what seems like a fatherly, let me help you sort of way. If I even, he's, let me help you. I beg you. Um, I don't know. It just, it's, it changes my way of thinking about the interaction between Anakin and Palpatine, particularly in Revenge of the Sith near its latter half, to see stuff like this and the way he's able to justify this to himself. But I'm not, I'm all, I think I'm always going to be torn on how much of this is him believing something that just ain't true because it helps him sleep at night, so to speak, versus him actually truly believing it because of the way that Palpatine presented himself. And maybe you can't actually know for sure what someone would do in that situation unless you yourself was essentially raised fatherless, being constantly told that you are supposed to be something, constantly being held back and having the one person who is willing to help you be someone that you have been taught your whole life to be against. I mean, it'd be like being a young German child who is an orphan who is raised throughout your entire life by a foster family only to wind up seeing Hitler come to power and tell you, oh, that mentor of yours is evil because he's a Jew. Granted, in this case, Palpatine actually is evil, but it's that same kind of black and white division being drawn in terms of what you're taught and finding that in reality, things feel like they should be the opposite um, when it actually comes to your life experience. I don't know. It's another one of these issues, one of these storylines that brings up some of those deeper issues that I always find interesting to look into with Anakin's psychology. Because he's one screwed up, yet intriguing guy. Well, yeah. I mean, so intriguing that, that Tom is even sitting down at one point trying to use the force on his blaster when Trekta comes in, careful, Lieutenant Tom. Now would be a very unfortunate time to discover you are Force-sensitive. Lord Vader would be most displeased. I'm just cleaning my blaster from halfway across the room. And I like that because, like, it kind of hints at something that we're going to get later, you know? I mean, the fact that Vader doesn't like rivals, and if you start using the Force now, that might not be such a good thing. But there's also another thing that they bring up that, I don't know, I, I stopped and I was I was profoundly shocked by Trakta. And I think that was one of the things I really was enjoying about Trakta, that this story actually served a lot for his character. Uh, in fact, almost as much as it did for Vader and Tom himself because of where he goes eventually. But he talks about, you know, you mask your emotions well, Lieutenant, and you are clearly a survivor of both traits that Vader seems to gr to value greatly. I would not presume to know Lord Vader, sir. I'm only trying to learn from him. I'm sure he'll teach you a great deal just as Headmaster Gentis once did. Think of this, though. If we claim to serve the Empire, and Gentis declares the same, which of us is the traitor? The one who tries to kill the Emperor? And as he walks out, Tracta says, only if he fails, Lieutenant. 
And that was, I mean, I, I stopped and thought about that for a while. I'm like, dude, that very good point. I mean, if you kill the emperor, but the empire remains, that doesn't necessarily make you a traitor anymore. Because, I mean, in a sense, that's what they kind of, you know, what Palpatine kind of did with the Jedi and, and all the politicians in the first place. It was like, oh, well, they're bad. So now, you know, we can live on as a new body. But I just thought that was really cool. It's like only if he fails. And the way he worded it and presented it, I was like, oh, that was it was a really cool moment. It made me stop and think. I was like, it had the traitor effect. <laughs> it too, Brute. I mean, it's it's this idea of uh, that, that someone can think of themselves as a hero if they topple what they think of as an unjust leader and yet – Keep the government going. Or, to put it another way, history is written by the victors, right? That if he were to succeed, if Gentis were to succeed, and the Empire were to go on, then he's going to be the one who influences the way that history is written from there forward that'll probably paint Palpatine in a different way than Palpatine himself would have wanted, or that history books would have been written or rewritten um, with Palpatine in charge. I also find it interesting that he's the one saying this, because bear in mind, in Empire Betrayal, he's the one who's going to go up against Vader. He's the one who's going to be plotting an overthrow, uh, whereas here he's the one who's stopping it. That brings us into issue four. And at this point, i got to say, a lot of stuff does happen in issue four. It's a lot of conversational stuff, but I find it's probably the slowest of the issues in this. The only thing that really stands out to me that I wanted to bring up in this is the speech. Um, there's a great great speech that is given by by uh, Trachta, which is what gets the others to follow him in the first place. There's that battle royal kind of thing that goes on, which is interesting, kind of odd that he would, that Vader would decide to do that, but I guess if you get 208, oops, nope, 207 prisoners, it would make sense to try to whittle it down to a real strike team here. And this is where they get the idea for the plan to basically intercept Moff Tarkin's ship when it's on the way, and put themselves aboard so that when he shows up on Coruscant, they can come out. Um, but the speech he gives is pretty rousy. It's one of these things that you're like, huh. Yeah. You know, if you were in that position, maybe you would have listened to it. He says, you all have blood on your hands. If not from today, then certainly from battles past. But the crimes you have committed, the lives you have taken no longer matter. Because we know that you have been wronged by the old republic by the selfish senators who waged war against the Confederacy of Independent Systems, and by the arrogant Jedi who left you here to rot. That is not the way of the Empire. We fight not for fortune or glory, but order. And we kill our enemies quick and clean. So kneel before us, and let the blood on your hands become a badge of honor. Let it make you loyal and brave. Let it make you fierce and unrelenting. And above all, let it make you imperial. And that's really kind of the Empire in a nutshell. And the kind of thing that would, it starts to make sense why, after years of war especially, why citizens of the Empire would be willing to go along with this. Now there's always that, that the question, again, to make the historical parallel, how could a regular rank-and-file German citizen have ever been willing to follow Adolf Hitler? Didn't they have Mein Kampf on their bookshelves, etc., etc.? But when it comes down to it, they felt beaten down by war by the Treaty of Versailles, by the Great Depression that, it, that it struck, not just in the United States, but crossed across the ocean. Um, almost everybody feeling at least some of the pain, except really the Soviet Union at that point. They had a leader, though, who showed up, who said, you know, follow me, I'll give you a better life. Follow me, I'll punish the people who were uh, supposedly responsible for this. And the people, you know, people get stirred up 
by speeches like this. And that mob mentality kicks in, and all of a sudden you've got people pledging to do things that before they wouldn't have. I mean, these were people fighting for the Confederacy, against the Republic, against people trying to control them. And now here they are working with the people who would have been trying to control them. You know, there it's it's that interesting psychological play where it's like, oh no, no, the Empire isn't the Republic in a new form. It is a separate thing. Although I have to laugh now with the whole in the old Republic. Because by my understanding, by my guessing right now, um, story group canon, new canon. Since there's no other backstory at this point existing, there are certain things we're gonna have to take at face value for now. Like, I will not like I will not let this republic that has stood for a thousand years be split in two. There hasn't been a full-scale war since the formation of the Republic. I took this dark saber from your Jedi Temple during the fall of the old Republic. Someone says, uh, pre, uh, yeah, Pre Bizla says, while the Republic is still standing. This idea of what actually is the old Republic these days versus the Republic, and is it perhaps that there was a Republic, then a Republic, then the Empire? Um, is interesting. So having them a couple of times emphasize old Republic is just kind of amusing to me at this point. We know that in Legends continuity, based on this story, of course, that he's referring back to the stuff that just went away a matter of months ago. But uh, references like that in the future, we're not going to be able to necessarily take uh, quite so literally, or quite so, what's the word I'm looking for? At face value? Not even at face value, because what we're doing usually is we're not taking things at face value within Legends continuity. When he says the Republic has stood for a thousand years and there hasn't been a full-scale war since the formation of it, we're not taking that at face value. We're saying, oh, that must be the Battle of Rusan and everything with the Sith going away. Don't worry about it. We've got a way to make it fit. That's not taking it at face value. That's using the context around it in the continuity and some retconning to make sense of Lucas saying something that's different than the EU, which itself based the beginning of the Republic 25,000 plus years ago on the for over a thousand generations that Jedi Knights were guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic. Um, and now that context may be gone. We, we still have the line from Obi-Wan, but who knows in story group canon how long ago they're going to say the Republic came about or if there were multiple incarnations of the Republic because in theory this is their chance to actually make use of Palpatine's comments and the comment by Pre Vizsla. I think Pre Vizsla saying that in Clone Wars about your old Republic certainly does imply that Lucas still did not change his mind or say, oopsie, I got the dating wrong when he made the comment about the thousand years in episode two. Um, so it's interesting just to see how things may be interpreted differently in the new canon versus the old. I'm betting there won't mm -hmm. be giant differences on things like that, but especially since so many writers from Legends continuity are coming into the story group-driven canon, but it makes for an interesting moment of, huh, that this story constantly referencing Old Republic in bold letters caused to, to pop to mind here. Yeah. Well, one of the things I'd mentioned before, and again in this issue I really enjoyed, was the the fact that Tom's you know, log was used as an editorial note. You know, they throw in little little things, which I got a kick out of. You know, they talk about the uh, the prism, which is the name of the ghost prison. It's called the prism. The prism's databank identified the attacker as General Urlarch, 
one of Dooku's enforcers captured by Anakin Skywalker near the Maw Cluster. Uh, then there is also uh, Captain Sean Volta, Confederacy sniper arrested by Kit Fisto and Anakin Skywalker before she could assassinate Senator such and such. Uh, the one that really got me, though, was this guy, Baron Nax Kriven, a jaded Jedi recruited by Count Dooku. He became a specter haunting the Outer Rim, appearing long enough to kill a Jedi general and wipe or wipe out a legion of clone troopers and then vanish again. Then... Carrion began kidnapping Force-sensitive children for Dooku. Skywalker finally tracked him down. And I love at that moment, like, the guy's attacking Vader and he's blasting Force lightning. He goes to jump over Vader and Vader reaches up and grabs him by his ponytails and just whips him to the ground. <laughs> he's all then beat the Baron senseless. <laughs> and of course, the Baron, he immediately, I yield and I pledge my service to you, Dark One. <laughs> like, I, I, I enjoy that. And then when they get to the end and they're all loading up, I'm like, oh, wow, Vader's actually going to let a dark Jedi, you know, a Jedi exile, somebody that even the Jedi locked up escape, you know. And then, of course, the, the turn that we got was awesome. But, yeah, that that speech that you mentioned, that was that that old Republic line. I love the way they used it in that. Uh, it, I don't know. For me, I, I really enjoyed this one a lot. It seemed to do a lot for the backstory and the forward story. And again, as he's walking along the bodies, you know, he's still seeing more people. You know, Harrigan, Shunt, and it's got a background. Uh, Rokto Bist, uh, General Callie Thrill, who uh, – and this one was cool because she's just laying there and, it, you know, she's dead. But it's all commander of the Clism fleet, Dooku's confidant, and perhaps more. And I, I don't know, immediately I was like, oh, you know, Vader taking a lover. Like, that would have been an interesting twist and kind of something I was kind of surprised they didn't do more of. I know when Ventress showed up, there was some uh, fan art and stuff showing the two of them in, like, an embrace. Uh, there's also a, a robotic-looking dude that's, like, all half together, and his name's uh, Juan Reigns. Uh, and, of course, you know, Vader's like, kill them. And the guy holds his blaster, but he's like, no blasters. We must conserve your energy packs. And he hands him a rod. He gives him a bar. The guy just has to beat him to death with a bar. I'm just like, dude, again, Vader showing the, the levels of, of evil that he is willing to go to. I mean, you know, you know, one minute he's all upset because, you know, his past self wasn't able to find out, you know, what happened to all these prisoners. And the next second he's personally killing them all. And then, you know, now he's like, well, here, beat the rest together. We need to save the blaster bolts. You know, just I, the level of darkness in him. I kind of get a kick out of seeing it because I have a hard time after the prequels come out, seeing Vader as the Vader I saw in the original trilogy. You know, once the prequels came out, it, it was little Anakin sitting in that pod racer and trying to place all this evil upon him to get back to that level of whoa the galaxy even our world's biggest bad guy you know and then we made him anakin i'm flying in a pod racer are you an angel and so i have a hard time getting there but but this kind of stuff gets me there man it, it, you know keep putting that on in the new canon you know i want to see the dark side of vader you know uh, let joe schreiber do some more of this stuff you know i'm looking forward to something like that <laughs> lord vader you would not be allowed to Kill Leia Organa as your prisoner aboard the Death Star. We need to track her to the base. Uh, what? I can't believe you're holding me back. It's not fair. But you will lead the assault on their base once we do track her. Yippee! Kind of the impression the prequels start to give you of, of Vader. Yeah, they, they did a very good job in some of these stories of showing the transition of really Anakin into Vader in that sense. Um, episode 3, Anakin into Vader, is a title change and a physical change. 
in the interim between trilogies, that's really the psychological change from Anakin into Vader, where he really is in the process of killing Anakin Skywalker. It kind of feels like as many times as he says, I killed him, Anakin is dead, and all that kind of stuff, like we also got with Last Command, or Lost Command, um, kind of makes me think that this is him sort of telling himself that Anakin is gone as a way of sort of willing it to be true as he's changing on the inside in most respects. Yeah, another great speech Trakta has with Tom, I have a great respect for Vader and a healthy dose of fear. He is an unmatched warrior and unwavering in his loyalty to the Emperor, but he is a blunt instrument. He solves every problem with a lightsaber. He never admits to his own mistakes and has no need of allies, and he certainly has no interest in mentoring anyone. At Vader's side, you will only learn how to serve. Come to me when you're ready to learn how to lead. And again, it's just that foreshadowing of everything that's going to happen to Tom in the next issue. You know, I, I love the way the Tracta is used here. That brings us into the last issue. Again, sort of feels like it goes very quickly. Um, I like the surprise that we find that Vader and them are aboard the shuttle whenever Tarkin arrives. Um, but you do have to make sure that you're catching everything in the narration there. Otherwise, you're going to be like, wait, what? Because we didn't actually see the interception in space. It Again, that's why it makes for a good surprise, but I got a feeling if you're reading these all as a whole or all in a trade paperback, you might be kind of scratching your head a little as it moves from one issue to the next because it doesn't feel as though there's a substantial passage of time in the way that the narration is set up right as the issue is starting. Yeah. Uh, of the three things that stand out to me with this particular issue, uh, you got the ending, you got the, uh, I guess, penultimate ending in a sense here with the ship being destroyed and everything. But really the most powerful part of this to me is that really when it comes down to it, Vader's fighting, Trachta's fighting, the others are fighting. And the Emperor is the one who finally fries Gentis. But I think it is Lorita Tom who ends it for real. Because he has that great moment in the midst of this intense battle. He's not going after Gentis with a thermal detonator or something. He just comes out of the haze of the battle recognizes Gentis's actual son, not his figurative sons, which are all these people, but his actual son, Call, calls out to him. The man turns to him, Tom, thank the maker. Thank him yourself. And he pulls his, you know, gangsta-style sideways blaster thing and just blasts him. And that is what winds up bringing Gentis over. And even when Gentis comes and cradles his son's dead body, Tom doesn't kill him. He just steps back, and the Emperor comes in from behind and fries him. But it's kind of like Lorita knows that the, the, the will of Gentis in a lot of ways has been broken now because the one thing this man wanted to save, the, the reason behind this was not vengeance. It was to stop others from dying the way his other son or sons had. He even says it there at the beginning. Uh, this was all for you, Call. When Palpatine marched your brothers to their deaths, I vowed that the Empire would never have you. With Tarkin's death, I will have fulfilled that promise. I know, Father, and all of that. The one goal he had was to save the life of his own child. Everything else spun out of that. And here, Lorita Tom steps up and, with seemingly minimal effort, kills him. Takes away the one thing that Gentis has left. And that, to me, that breaking moment, I mean, even if he hadn't been fried, I don't know what would have happened. But it seems as though that's the that's the moment 
that this insurrection ended. The frying with the force lightning and the mopping up, it was just that, mopping up. Larita Tom is the quote-unquote hero of the Empire in this. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I love the way that that played out. That scene was an excellent scene. Um, there was something, though, when, when Vader and them walk down, Vader's like, I don't know, his left hand looks like he's generating force lightning. Like, I mean, I, I'm all for that. I mean, I know... I think it's, a, it, based on the next panel, I think it's supposed to be like in the Force Unleashed where you see him charging up to do a force push and you're getting like a, a wavering energy around it. I don't think it's meant to be lightning. Okay, the next well, that panel, makes sense. Oof. You're right, actually, yeah, because when you look at it, it is a full circle, exactly a lot like Force Unleashed, which was cool, too, because it's like, you know, by my estimates, Gentis had us outnumbered at least eight to one, but Gentis did not have a Sith Lord in his ranks or a bitter ex exiled Jedi. Gentis lacked expendable soldiers to soak up blaster fire and unpredictable frontline fighters. I, I Again, the, the team that Vader has got here worked out in his advantage, you know, and it shows tracked and he's got the, you know, cyborg onboard targeting computers and he's got his hands out each direction, blasting away and stuff, proving that not everyone in this is doing the gangster fighting. But yeah, I, I'm agreeing with you 100% though. When, when Call died, that was it for Gentis. I mean, he just gave up. In fact, at that moment, like, when Call drops to the ground and you see kind of like the force building up for what I'm assuming is Palpatine unleashing the blast, I thought a thermal detonator had dropped or something and that, that Tom was willing to let himself be blown away to get this revenge and then slowly walked away and that it was the thermal detonator that was catching him at first. And then it was like, oh, okay, it's Palpatine and then, because he did not have the Emperor. And, oh, man, just the way he fried him. I thought that was a really cool use of the colors and stuff, the purples, the way you saw his bones light up and all that. And then it gets to that execution scene that I talked to you about earlier. I, I don't know. For me, I really liked the plot, the way this moved forward. It was a really fun ride. You know, you see, uh, you know, the moth become the grand moth. You see all the, the people that were promised to go get their little goodbye. And then, of course, the betrayal that you mentioned earlier that, that solidifies in a lot of ways the distrust that Tracta has for, for Vader. You know, I, mm. for me that, I think that's probably one of the biggest things that really served aside from what was going on between Vader and Tom Tracta's character was the unknown star. You know, I wasn't expecting that. I think of those two pieces to the ending, uh, the exploding vessel. Okay. You're all leaving. You're in exile. You can't come back or we'll kill you. Get on the ship and take off that the ship exploding to me. I saw coming miles away. There was nothing surprising about that, because as soon as you saw a scene where they were actually seeing them off, you knew something was going to happen. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been shown. Um, so that, I was kind of like, meh. But the fact that, the effect that it has on Trashta, the whole idea of, you know, I gave them my word and you let me betray them. To have that be something that causes that rift between him and Lorita Tom and between him and Vader even more. Um... The fact that Lorita Tom actually kept, and it, this kind of makes me think there's a romantic thing happening here, even though they say, uh, Tresh said, you know, she would, and the woman Captain Volta, in time, she would have become an unparalleled admiral. And as the ship is taking off, Lorita says, I, I completely agree, Headmaster, but we all make sacrifices for the Empire. And yet, we find at the end that as part of the arrangement that has been made here that not only got him promoted to admiral by the emperor himself, he got a full pardon and an apartment and a military appointment for her. Um, so it seems an interesting thing that that's, he would specifically vouch for her. They had that connection back in the end of the previous issue where they were talking about her past. It's interesting that he sort of 
got her something as a reward for him, which ironically makes her the one that winds up surviving out of all this, that maybe she could wind up teaming up with Tratchter or something to go after revenge on Vader, um, because, of course, Lurita Tom himself dies. And that, at the end, was a huge shocker ending, and it's one of the things that always comes to mind when I think about this series. I always think about um, the sequence with the hologram of Anakin talking to the Jedi Council, where Vader is there watching it in the Jedi Council chamber as a hologram, and this ending where Vader just picks him up and tosses his, him to his doom. But I gotta wonder about the motivation here. Because Anakin slash Vader is having his mind played with by the Emperor, you know, continue to groom him, and should you ever fall, the young Admiral could prove a worthy successor. And maybe in terms of leading part of the Empire and as a strategist, but surely Vader doesn't think that somehow this kid, who seems not to be Force-sensitive at all, would become the Sith Apprentice. That Vader would be shoved aside for him. Um... I mean, there's always that sense that Vader doesn't like rivals, and Vader has to always protect from ever being at anyone's disadvantage because that rival could wind up being his replacement, and the Emperor could simply take him out. But of all people that we've seen as possible rivals to Vader that he has killed for that very reason, Lorita Tom seems like the last person you would expect to actually be a threat to him. So while that ending is a cool shock, I have to sit back thinking... Man, Vader didn't think too hard about that, did he? No, not at all he didn't. <laughs> I think the thing that I like about it the most is the last word is said on the second to last page. You know, Vader's holding him up over the edge. Never suffer rivals. What? No, please, no! As he's let go, and then the next page is just, all you see is him falling, 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 and then Vader standing on the edge. And I don't know, I found that was a profound ending, and again, while it was Tom and Vader's story, I, I found Tracta was the hidden star uh, for me going through it again. I mean, the first time through, he was just there, but the second time through, I realized how much more it impacted his character, and how developmentally it actually pushed his character in a direction that what we see later, and it gives that character that we see later depth, so I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, for me, I would say that this is probably, if I had to go on the 10-point scale, I'd say it's probably about 8.5 for me. I really enjoyed it a lot. There was very few things that actually detracted from it. Um, good story. It was a great one-shot. I mean, if you're if you're out there talking about, you know, oh, I love one-shots and stuff, this is a prime example of a very good one-shot. You know, it was done really well. Um, and what was also cool is it was a fun ride even on the singles. Like, I wasn't confused at times. And stuff. I, was, I was begging for more, which I think adds to why Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin fell so low from the bar that they set right here. You know, I'm going to probably surprise folks given the fact that usually I'm I'm picking apart pieces of stories and and based on what I just said about the ending here and everything and Vader not thinking about it too hard. Uh, but from the standpoint of being not necessarily continuity impact, though it does have some, and I think it very heavily develops the character uh, of Vader in this post-Revenge uh, post of the Sith era, and such, um, despite the little critiques that I would give, as fun as this is to read, I'm going to give it a 10. It is absolutely up there with one of the, or as one of the best Star Wars stories, not just in this era, but in general. Great fun to read, not a lot of prerequisites to understand things to read it. You can read this immediately after Revenge of the Sith, get a lot out of it, and it's a hell of a story. Um, 
and it's it's one of these things that again makes me sad that Hayden Blackman isn't spending more time writing for Star Wars these days. He's uh, he's the guy that did the Force Unleashed one, the Force Unleashed two, both of which I love, but I know they're very controversial to many people. Um, some people absolutely hate them and such. Um, but Blackman absolutely knocked it out of the park with this one. The last series was good, it wasn't great, it was good. Um, and when he leaves the Darth Vader series and it jumps to Seidel, whoo, yeah, it is an immense, immense, immense fall. Um, I was thinking in my head as you were talking about the no kind of thing that I was wondering if Lorita Tom wound up becoming street pizza right alongside the splat left from Mace Windu, that little grease spot from Mace Windu going splat. Uh, I guess beside them would be the Darth Vader line of comics going splat because we basically go from a story that is a 10 to a story that is probably, at least in my eyes, probably a 1 when we get Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin. We go from one of the best Vader stories told within the expanded universe to one of the absolute worst. Um, Very sad to see Hayden Blackman leave after this. That's like being a member of the 501st on Nightfall and walking in after Anakin. What am I supposed to do? Everyone's dead. Now, when we get to covers, I, you know, something we want to point out last episode, we uh, didn't really notice it until afterwards, that these weren't collected in the regular trade paperbacks. They're collected in hardcover trade paperbacks. In this case, the number one issues cover also serves the cover of that one. Uh, and it's, you know, got, welcome to Coruscant, a good place to die. And it's got Vader standing there with, like, his left hand held out with Coruscant down below it with a, a Star Destroyer, a Venerator-class uh, cruiser there uh, pulling up. I like it. It's a nice one. It's got some, you know, dusty kind of art. Everything looks nebulous around Vader. The second one, again, it's got that space theme in the background. Don't mess with the man in black. And Vader's got his hands together with his lightsaber coming up. Decent enough pose. You can kind of see some of the cityscape in the background around it and stuff. Again, it's got that that feathery look to the space scene and stuff. Third one is probably my, what the heck? Uh, it's got Vader. It's got an up close of his helmet. But it's kind of like half skeleton, half force misty. I'm not really sure what the heck they were trying to do with that one. So that one's a little hard. The fourth one, I got to give them kudos on the fact that they actually put more people on the cover than just Vader. The battle for the ghost prison. And it's got Trocta on one side blasting, and then it's got Tom. And at this point, the sleeve kind of is billowing out like it's caught in a breeze. So it kind of looks like he's got like a a tiny arm. (laughs) And Vader just doesn't really look that great there's a lot of blurred lines and stuff going on again that one's not really my favorite we get to the last one it's all right as well uh it's got vader kind of lunging forward the student surpasses the teacher which i mean i I guess i get where they're trying to go there but like you said tom didn't see that much maybe if if there was a scene where when tom was reaching for the blaster maybe the blaster would have moved a little and then you know, Trakta come in and say, hey, don't do that. And then maybe have a scene where Trakta's like, oh, hey, by the way, did you know he's force sensitive? Like that made a, might have made it a little more in that case. But this cover, you know, it, that little, the student surpasses the teacher kind of seems a little odd. The art there again, it, it's got that blurry effect. I'm not a big fan of it, but it's not something I dislike. I would say, though, that the first and second one are my probably my standouts, with the first one being my favorite of the five. Uh, but there's not anything really great with them. They'd be okay in the calendar. Uh, you know, we talked about that with the last one. Now they would all have been good with calendars. This, these have been okay. They, none of them are, are crappy, per se. 
they're all pretty good. I mean, they're again, they they work more. It seems as covers, they would work more as posters uh, or on a calendar than necessarily something I'd like to see as interior artwork. But for covers, they work fairly well. Um, the focus is still on Vader, but we get a little bit more uh, of characters elsewhere or, or outside of him. Uh, issue number one, definitely my favorite of the covers, as you were saying. I'm glad they used it for the the trade hardback. I guess you'd call it, the hardcover collection of this. Uh, I've never been a real big fan, though, of the text on the covers. Uh, And here we've got, Welcome to Coruscant, a good place to die. And I can't read that without two things popping into my head. One, Worf, perhaps today is a good day to die, which he says frickin' constantly uh, in the Trek mythos. Um, Or, even worse, Magneto from the X-Men arcade game. X-Men, welcome to die. Kind of what I'm getting here, especially since Vader's got the arm out there saying, Jedi, welcome to die. Um, Second issue, got to agree with the cover. Don't mess with the man in black. Johnny Cash will kick your ass. Um, let's see. Issue three, not a favorite of mine. Probably the, the weakest of the covers for me. It's just kind of making me wonder what exactly is it that we're supposed to be seeing here. It seems kind of like it's almost like an X-ray-ish type uh, thing going on here. And there's way too many covers out there of just Vader's face. They all kind of blend together to me. Well, in uh, this case, you almost need the words to know what's going on. Vader, a force skull. <laughs> something like that, yeah. Uh, then you've got four, the battle for the ghost prison, and really that's not what that is. It's not a battle for the ghost prison. It's a battle in the ghost prison, but they're not fighting to control it. They're fighting to figure out who's going to be the ones to join their strike team, so that's a little bit uh, of a misnomer here. And then the student surpasses the teacher. I guess maybe if you're thinking of Lorita Tom being the one to help take down Gentis. Or Lorita Tom being the one to really make that final moment that it sort of cinches the deal when Vader's the one just out there killing folks. But I don't see those students surpasses the teacher thing. And that just helps play even more into that ending of being like, what? I mean, really? Does Palpatine think that Lorita Tom is more effective in the field than Vader would be? Is that why he's saying this? So, well, yeah. Well, I gotta, I, you just brought a question to my head that I got to throw out there, though. Tarkin has no force sensitivity and in a lot of ways has more esteem and respect from Palpatine than Vader gets. So, I mean, I could see him go, you are not going to be the next Tarkin. No, you little one, no one arm boy. I am taking you down. I guess it just, it just seems a little bit odd uh, to me because with no force sensitivity, they may be able to take the place as like the closest advisor or the right hand man, but could they ever take the place as a Sith apprentice? no, or does Palpatine at this point, now that he's got the power, does maybe he doesn't give a crap about having an apprentice anymore because he's got what the Sith have wanted all along? Um, I don't know. And and I guess in I guess Vader watched way too much of the Fugitive uh, back when he was on Coruscant as a child because maybe that explains why he decided he had to throw Lorita Tom down there because otherwise he would spend his entire career watching out for the activities of the one-armed man. <laughs> Thank you.
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you can get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanding universe or any other genre, like Game of Thrones, without being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months if you don't like it. No wait, questions wait, asked. Wait, you said like Game of Thrones. And those who have ever read those books will know that one of the books you may flat out hate might be on Game of Thrones because the show may be great but good god those novels are plotting as hell <laughs> consider it a warning they are extremely dense go over the same ground a lot and at least some of them are insanely hard to get through he writes a book the size of an encyclopedia that sometimes reads like an encyclopedia I heard that fourth one pretty hard to get through. And what would, what would an unabridged version of that from Audible be? 60 hours or something? I've got the complete... The uh, the Patriots History of the United States that I'm reading, that I'm listening to again as an audiobook right now, and that sucker's like 50 hours long. A Song of Ice and Fire. Read it now as you head towards retirement. You'll finish as you pick up Social Security, if it still exists. Anyway. Side, side note there, I suppose. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that will feel quite as positively about Darth Vader and the Cry of Shadows, the final Darth Vader arc for us to cover. Or the odds that Mark will be all moved in by him. You get a free trial run. Is that backslash or forward slash? If I know, just say slash. I always say slash. Riley says it, and I'm always like, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a backslash if it's in a, uh, if it's in a web address. Towards the right. (laughs) All right.